The largest civil lawsuit in U.S. history has a long list of plaintiffs, including several Georgia counties and cities. The defendants? Drug companies. You know, we believe that the manufacturers and the distributors of opioids have fueled this crisis. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought, hear about local government suits against opioid manufacturers that they claim failed to prevent the opioid crisis. And meet Susan Rebecca White, the local author using fictional characters to ask big questions. In my own experience as a reader, the books that stay with me are ones where there's characters who I love and I fall in love with and I end up feeling like they're a part of my extended family. Her new book, We Are All Good People, follows two young women through the civil rights era and deals with our individual impacts on broader social movements. Join us for On Second Thought right after the news. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Several Georgia communities are involved in one of the largest civil trials in U.S. history. The consolidated case is unfolding in federal court in Cleveland. The defendants are opioid manufacturers and distributors. The plaintiffs, local governments who say they've shelled out money to address the epidemic in their communities. Among them, at least 18 Georgia counties, five cities, and two Georgia hospital authorities. Well, the case had a hearing yesterday, so today we're getting a rundown of what's happening with with UGA law professor Elizabeth Birch on the line from WUGA. Hello there. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Also with us, Washington Post reporter Stephen Rich. He's joining us from D.C. He's a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner who's been analyzing data from the case. Stephen, welcome. Thank you for having me. All right, I'm going to start with Elizabeth. A massive lawsuit here. It's been unfolding for about a year and a half. Can you give us a brief summary of what's happening in the case? Sure. Um, well, you know, there's a lot going on in the federal multi-district litigation. Multi-district litigation is a procedure that we use to coordinate cases that are similar across the country. But there's also a lot that's happening in the various states. Um, just in July, we saw a trial in Oklahoma wrap up. It was a bench trial. Um, we're still waiting for a verdict there. Um, Judge Polster, who is presiding over the federal cases, has largely been focused on settlement. I mean, he came right out of the box talking about settlement in uh, January of 2018, so last year, um, and has continued to pursue that most recently yesterday uh, when he was talking about the negotiation class action. All right, Stephen, court battles often public, but the data that you reviewed from the case were sealed. The Washington Post and Charleston Charleston Gazette Mail had to sue for access to learn how many opioid pills went to various cities and counties per person per year. Now, this is between 2006 and 2012. Can you tell us what those numbers revealed? Yeah, so we found that uh, distributors sent more than 76 billion pills across the United States over that seven-year period, including uh, about 2.7 billion pills uh, to Georgia itself. Um, and that uh, basically equates to 36 pills per person per year for every man, woman, and child across the entire United States. Uh, now, we know that not every every person is taking opioids, and so the those numbers are often higher among the actual users of the pills. Um, and so what we're actually able to see is the communities that are the hardest hit. You know, we know that some... Uh, counties are, have more than a hundred pills per person per year, including a couple in Georgia um, itself. Are these counties concentrated in any particular area besides Georgia? So I mean, there you are, mentioned. 
Yeah, so there is basically like a, a virtual opioid belt that spans from the middle of West Virginia down through southwest Virginia and into uh, Kentucky. Uh, in some of those counties, it's upwards of 200 pills per person per year, and the counties surrounding it are also uh, just about the same. And so those areas have been particularly hard hit. And Stephen, then you cross-reference uh, that pill distribution data with the number of opioid deaths and found that places with an inordinate number of pills correspond with disproportionate to the population number of deaths. Now, if you are listening at home, check out gpbnews.org later today. We've got the Washington Post graphics depicting this correlation. So how do those trends play out in Georgia? Uh, just about the same. We know that the counties where there are high concentrations of these pills, um, there were high concentrations of these deaths relative to the population. Um, some of those areas include sort of the northwest portion, the counties that are right along the border, um, and uh, and then in the, the far south of Georgia, uh, those, those counties had high pills and high deaths. So th it, it's a little more complicated than like the pills cause the deaths, but it is an, obviously a major contributing factor to, um, to these deaths because, you know, the, the more pills you have, the more likely it is that people are going to overdose on them. Yeah. Elizabeth, this case has about 2,000 local governments on the plaintiff side, really complicated. And there's a proposal that it should be called some, uh, a, a class negotiation. <laughs> I, I, what is that and how would it work here? Well, you know, it's all sort of new to me as well. Uh, it's it's essentially a mutant. Um, it's a class action. Um, but instead of a class action that's actually being certified for the purposes of trial or for the purpose of actually um, deciding whether to settle a case, this is a class action where all of the cities and counties are banding together beforehand um, and agreeing to a formula that would essentially allocate any ultimate settlement war award among them. Um, and the formula is um, broken down into seven different categories, and or maybe it's six different categories, but um, each of the categories requires an affirmative vote of 75% um, of whomever might ultimately vote on that to decide whether uh, to accept a settlement offer. So who would be included or excluded from a negotiation class, for example? Well, I mean, that's kind of the crazy thing. You know, you normally think about the lawsuit as only including the parties who have actually chosen to sue. And as you mentioned earlier, in Georgia, it's about 18 counties so far. Um, of course, we've got a separate lawsuit by Attorney General Chris Carr, which is proceeding in uh, state court here in Georgia. Um, but the negotiation class would include everybody. So whether you have sued or whether you haven't sued, um, all of the counties and cities in the entire United States, unless they affirmatively opt out uh, and decide not to participate in this negotiation class, then they're going to be bound um, by the settlement that's ultimately decided and if ultimately kind of a, an affirmative vote. So I'll note here that this has not been certified yet. The hearing yesterday was uh, a hearing to decide uh, whether to certify the negotiation class action. Um, and so that's that's what's been going on most currently. So that's the broad sweep. But of the nearly dozen Georgia counties, several cities involved, uh, what are their arguments for recouping financial damages? Well, they're all a little bit different. Um, and, you know, the arguments differ even across, um, you know, the United States. Our Attorney General Chris Carr 
has focused principally on uh, the opioid manufacturers and distributors. Um, They have named a number of pharmaceutical companies uh, currently just named as John Doe's right now. Um, but we have you know, slightly different theories of liability asserted uh, in Georgia than, say, you know, in Oklahoma or a different state. Um, there have been lawsuits here that are filed uh, based on our RICO statutes. RICO is a racketeering statute. It was designed to deal with the mob many years ago. Um, but we also have you know, norm- more normal claims, one might say, over public nuisance and negligence and civil conspiracy. Um, So there are a lot of different types of claims that the state is asserting. That's UGA law professor Elizabeth Birch, also with me, Washington Post reporter Stephen Rich. And we're talking about a consolidated opioid lawsuit unfolding in federal court. Twenty-three Georgia counties and cities are plaintiffs in the case. Now, Stephen, drug companies are blaming medical professionals who promiscuously prescribed opiates. Plaintiffs argue that manufacturers and distributors saw red flags and ignored them to make more money. You got an inside look at what was happening from these court documents, including a deposition from one Victor Borelli. He's an account manager for Malinrot. This is a pharmaceuticals company. What was revealed there? So we know that uh, many of these companies, the their only goal of some of these people was to sell as many of these pills as possible and to get as many of these pills into the hands of people as they could. And so Victor uh, had sent uh, emails indicating essentially uh, that he he would just he would sell anybody anything um and one infamous email he refers to the pills as doritos as in mm-hmm. you keep eating we'll keep sending them to you mm-hmm. um and and so there was sort of this culture at least that's the argument that uh the plaintiffs are making that that in these drug companies the the culture was to just sell 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 um, without thinking about what the potential potential repercussions of this would be yeah I'm reading from one keep them coming uh, flying out of here it's like people are addicted to these things or something oh wait <laughs> people are just extreme insensitivity the drug company for its part says they fired him a long time ago and this is no indication but Borelli's deposition uncovered another person's name aunt or aunt Sandra I- I'm saying name instead of person for a reason what's the story with aunt Sandra so Aunt Sandra was basically a person listed in, a, in an email as somebody who needed uh, 1,500 pills a month um, in, in case uh, – the, so the math on that is basically 50 opioid pills a day and mm-hmm. these are these are oxy-15s. So they're pretty powerful. Um, that would be enough to kill most people, probably everybody. Um, and so basically they the, – the talk was about approving this this shipment of, of this – what is clearly a suspicious shipment to a pharmacy that they had never dealt with. And one of the things that we found actually outside of the deposition was that this shipment was made um, and it was the only shipment that this company had ever sent to this pharmacy and it was for it was for above the amount of the pills that would be necessary for whoever Aunt Sandra might be. Elizabeth, as you mentioned, proving negligence or duty to act gets pretty tricky, especially here in Georgia. But can you talk us through both sides of the legal arguments here? What do the drug companies say in response to these allegations? Well, the drug companies largely point to other actors. 
actors. Um, so, for example, you know, instead of the manufacturers being held responsible, they say, look, you know, we make the drug, then we distribute the drug. The drug then goes to pharmacies. But before you can get it as an end user, your doctor has to prescribe it. These are pills that are FDA approved. This isn't something like tobacco because there are genuine needs and there are general, genuine medical purposes uh, for having drugs like this. Well, how will the plaintiffs then try to prove that the drug companies themselves are responsible? Well, I mean, as Stephen has um, has shown, you know, there, there are all these different documents that, um, in fact, show that drug companies knew exactly what was going on and were, in fact, promoting it. Um, there are questions about the ways that they marketed the drugs. Um, you know, as soon as they found out that there might have been a doctor who was more willing to prescribe than someone else, then that doctor was uh, repeatedly visited by pharmaceutical company representatives. Um, and so, you know, they continued to push these types of drugs, even in instances where there were already red flags. Whether or not the drug companies broke laws is up to the court. But Stephen, your reporting reveals what could be a failure by some companies to follow DEA compliance regulations. What happened there? And how much weight is that going to have on the case? So uh, these companies are required to submit uh, suspicious order reports to uh, to the DEA, uh, and that's basically things that are outside of the norm, like orders that are that are abnormally large for a specific pharmacy. And so, what we know is, in in many cases, there were approvals of these suspicious orders very quickly. One uh, one Purdue Pharma exec uh, got an email with a suspicious order at 4:15 one afternoon and approved it at 4:16. Um, and what we also know is that some of these companies were trying to get around this by not calling orders suspicious, but by calling them like peculiar orders um, as, as a way of getting around sort of reporting these things to uh, to the DEA. And we know that some of these companies had like thousands of suspicious orders and the number of uh, – times that they reported it to the DEA and stopped these orders was was very, very small, enough to, you know, count on one hand or two. Elizabeth, we're heading into a break, but I want to ask you, and we can certainly pick this up, this settlement is expected to surpass the nearly $250 billion settlement with tobacco companies back in 1998. So 20 years later, we've seen that a lot of that money from tobacco settlements didn't necessarily end up going towards tobacco prevention or education programs. Uh, is that motivating cities and counties to take companies to court themselves? Absolutely. You know, the cities and the counties were actually the first drivers of these lawsuits, and they're the ones that are in the um, federal multidistrict proceeding. Um, and there's a lot of tension that's playing out between the cities and counties and the state attorney generals, uh, particularly with the state suing in their own courts. All right, we're going to hold this for just a moment. We're talking about a massive opioid lawsuit, several Georgia counties involved. Elizabeth Birch is with us from UGA Law. Washington Post reporter Stephen Rich, we're going to take a quick break. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We'll continue the conversation right after a short break. I'm Virginia Prescott.
We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott, and we're talking today about one of the largest civil trials in U.S. history. It's going after makers and distributors of opioids. About 2,000 cities and counties across the state, or across the country, rather, are involved, and that includes about two dozen in Georgia. UGA law professor Elizabeth Birch is on the line with us from Athens. Washington Post reporter Stephen Rich from D.C. And Stephen, you have covered the opioid epidemic extensively. How has it changed life, feeling, conversations, relationships in the counties and cities part of the lawsuit? I mean, we know that it's topic A in most of these places, you know, where where many people uh, in like the Beltway are paying attention to the president. Uh, many people in these communities are mostly just talking about these these opioids and i mean at this point it's not just these prescription pills anymore in in many of these counties uh they've moved on to a heroin crisis and subsequently a fentanyl crisis which is killing more than the prescription drug crisis ever did and so it's front of mind for many of the people living here because you know it's not everybody knows somebody everybody knows a person who has either overdosed from um from one of these opioids or or they know somebody who knows somebody and so uh it's really is sort of the the topic of conversation and and it's it's frustrating for a lot of people many people in these communities have been suffering for this from for 20 years and and many of them knew what was coming and nobody did anything to stop it and so that has been a major frustration for many of these people well that's where a lot of addicts have turned after they couldn't get opioids as easily into street drugs heroin or fentanyl but can you make the argument that because of their aggressive marketing, people got hooked on these opioids? And, you know, can you connect them to those non-prescription drug deaths? I mean, we know that people got hooked on the opioids. We know that the, the marketing was was not at the beginning stages that these things were addictive. And now whether or not um, the marketing contributed to that is going to be a major factor in this case, whether the plaintiffs can prove that. Um, but we know that people on prescription drugs moved on to heroin and on to fentanyl. We just we it, it is the third wave of the of the opioid crisis, and we know that one followed the next, followed the next, because many of these people were people who had overdosed and lived on prescription pills only to die on heroin or fentanyl. Elizabeth, I'm going to turn to that Georgia case you mentioned. This huge lawsuit from municipalities across the states is one thing, but many states are suing opioid companies separately, and Georgia among them. So why would Georgia or any other state choose to go ahead and sue on its own? I mean, I think the main idea is that you want to get your home court advantage. You want to try these cases in front of local judges and local juries. You want to give a chance uh, for local citizens to actually weigh in, you know, to give them a voice about what's happening in the community. Um, and they're not able to do that if the trials are all being held in Cleveland, Ohio. So how far along is the Georgia lawsuit compared to Cleveland? The Georgia lawsuit is really in its infancy. Um, it's been filed. There have been motions to dismiss that have been filed. Those motions to dismiss have not been decided yet. In fact, um, there is, I believe, a motion pending now to move this to Georgia's new business court. Uh, so it's not yet clear who's going to be the ultimate decider of these Georgia lawsuits. And we've been talking about civil action against drug companies. In the case of street drug sales, we're talking about crime. So can you explain why or how the legal approach would be different for a Purdue farmer, for example, versus someone selling fentanyl in the streets in Atlanta? 
Well, you know, I'll just note that there have been a number of um, both civil and criminal actions filed in these cases. Um, you know, if you've been following the news, you, you know what's going on with NCs. Um, NCs was a, was a company that made a fentanyl-based painkiller. Um, their uh, chief eject- executive, John Kapoor, was found guilty on racketeering charges this past May. Um, they paid $225 million to settle federal, civil, and criminal charges in June, and then they ultimately filed bankruptcy later in June. Um, so it's not as if one is happening in isolation uh, to the other. In fact, these are very much parallel tracks. Stephen, your paper had to sue to get data and court documents that allowed you to literally map this opioid belt, as you called it, and see behind the doors of drug makers. That is getting harder and harder to do as newspapers shrink. You know, the budgets are not there anymore. So if you had all the resources you needed to get all the information you needed, what do you think would be the next chapter of this opioid epidemic story? I mean, we want to see what happened after 2012. Uh, you know, the in, in court, the data that they have is through 2014. So we are still suing uh, to make the next the, the 2013 and 2014 data public. Um, we would also like the data up through last year. We'd like to be able to see sort of how this ha- happened after, you know, the DEA stepped in and, and did that. But honestly, you know, I want to see everything. I'm, I'm a huge transparency advocate and and I think you know we have a right to know what exactly happened here so I you know we really want there are a lot more documents in this case that have we have yet to see because they are still under seal um, the the drug companies are have just uh, have just appealed the ruling to make many of them public again. And so we're still waiting on that. But ultimately, um, we have only sort of our reporting has only sort of scratched the surface of what we know about what the drug companies knew and when they knew it during the height of the opioid crisis. Stephen Rich, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Stephen Rich from The Washington Post, UGA law professor Elizabeth Birch. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now we've been talking about a massive lawsuit related to the opioid crisis. A quick note of disclosure, one of the producers who worked on this segment has an out-of-state family member who works at CVS headquarters that is one of the defendants in this case. Gilroy, California, El Paso, Texas, and Dayton, Ohio. Three mass shootings, 34 lives taken, dozens injured, all in the course of a single week. In response, President Donald Trump is scheduled to visit both Dayton and El Paso today. Rick Rojas is in El Paso, Texas. He is the new national correspondent for the South at The New York Times and joins us on the line. Rick, thanks so much for sticking around to speak with us. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. So the shooting in El Paso took place last Saturday. When did you make your way there? So I um, I, I flew out on, on Saturday night and did a bit of a trip uh, getting here from New York, but I got here first thing Sunday morning and started reporting that. And we've been hearing a lot about how the community has responded in the aftermath. What are you seeing there? Uh, I'm seeing a lot of anger and anguish, but also a lot of cohesion. You know, El Paso takes a lot of pride in in itself and its community and in its, its bi, binational culture. And so this has been a, a, a very forceful display of that, not just because of what happened, but also because of all of the rhetoric that has surrounded it and the things that President Trump has said about the city in the past that has really uh, pushed them to, to be very uh, 
forceful in in, in, in displaying their pride in their city and, and just their pride in their culture here. Well, President Donald Trump plans to visit Dayton and El Paso today. Some residents and officials in Dayton have said he isn't welcome. Similar responses in El Paso? Oh, certainly, yes, yes. Because there's, I mean, there's friction here that goes back months. You know, he referred, and the president referred to El Paso as one of the most dangerous cities in the nation during his State of the Union address. And then he came here for a rally, uh, a political rally. And a lot of people think that he's used their city as a political prop. And they're just, and, and they really have taken issue with his description of the city as a dangerous place. And so they think that it kind of adds insult to injury for him to come here now that they're grieving and that they've asked, and this is mostly a lot of regular people, they've asked him to stop. Whereas the mayor here has taken a very kind of tepid approach where saying essentially, well, he's, he's the president, he can come, I will greet him as the president, but I didn't invite him here. That's El Paso Mayor DeMargo, who is a Republican, by the way. So he will be there as consoler in chief, which is increasingly becoming part of the presidential job. Will he likely take questions from the press while he's there? I don't know. I, I, if so, it'll likely be from the usual White House correspondents who cover him and not, I don't, I don't know whether local reporters will be involved Mm -hmm. in that. Well, he has made statements addressing a variety of things in response to the shootings, white supremacy, mental illness, video games, internet bigotry. His early tweet calling for background checks was not mentioned again when he spoke about this officially yesterday from the White House. How hate has no place here, uh, that message. How is that reverberating this community grieving 34 deaths from gun violence? I think there is a sense that they don't take him at his word because they view his rhetoric as playing a part in this, that they've noted, noted the similarities between the language uh, the suspected gunman used in his manifesto and the language that the president has used in describing uh, immigrants. And there's, there's, a, there's quite a bit of animosity. They're, just, they're not ready to take his words at face value just yet. Yeah, let's get it to the investigation there. We do know that the gunman traveled to El Paso from Allen, Texas, where he lived. He posted a screed on 8chan about 20 minutes before the attack uh, at the Walmart, where many shoppers were doing their back-to-school shopping. What else are we learning about the suspect or the situation? Well, we learned that he he took a – this was was, – he took an – it took him more than 10 hours to drive here from – Allen, and he went. He got lost in the neighborhood near the Walmart before, just as he got into town, and then went to the Walmart. Uh, police have been able to kind of piece together a timeline using information that he has given them. Apparently, uh, the chief of police here said uh, in a recent press conference that the 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 suspect has been uh, incredibly forthcoming. That he has basically everything they know about how the attack was carried out was in, has, has in large part come from him. Mm. Uh, but they have said that he has not shown any remorse for this, uh, that that's something that the chief has specifically asked about and that he has shown no sign of that. Um, and if anything, he seemed to be in a, I think the chief's words were a state of like shock and confusion uh, since the shooting. 
Rick Rojas is with us. He's the new Southern correspondent for the New York Times. He's on the line with from El Paso, Texas, where he's providing continuing coverage of, in the aftermath of last weekend's mass shooting. Well, the gunman in the other two shootings are both dead. An autopsy revealed that the Gilroy gunman shot himself. The Dayton gunman was shot by police. Do we know how the El Paso gunman was arrested? I believe he was picked up um, near the near the site. They just pulled him over and, and brought him in. I don't think it was my understanding is it wasn't that confrontational of a of a showdown. Well, we're looking at you know these shootings throughout this last week, and of course further back than that. But there's things that distinguish this. The Gilroy Garlic Festival shooting is being investigated as an act of domestic terrorism. U.S. Attorney John Bash said that they will pursue a criminal, civil rights, hate crime, and domestic terrorism investigation in the El Paso case. Now we should note that there is no domestic terrorism charge in the federal code currently. So what is the difference in these cases that make domestic terrorism apply? I think it was because of the 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 motivation for the attack. There was a very clear, you know, if you read this manifesto, there was a clear rationale for why uh, the perpetrator acted the way that he did and it was done you know it, it was done as an act of to 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 go after a specific group of people he targeted in this attack now not all of the victims were mexican or mexican americans but in large part they were and it's because the police said that he methodically searched them out in the store to to shoot them and so i think that kind that the that sort of bias involved in the crime sort of adds another layer to it that the authorities say makes it uh, domestic terrorism. In Dayton, Ohio, Governor Mike DeWine proposed adopting a version of the red flag law, allowing authorities to take firearms from a person deemed by a court to be dangerous. And for more background checks as well, any proposed le- legislation being discussed there in Texas so far? I mean, nothing in any sort of concrete way. I think that uh, the governor and uh, other top state officials are supposed to meet with lawmakers from El Paso today, and I imagine that'll certainly be something on the table that they'll be bringing up. But uh, there has been nothing that's really emerged in a in a in a in, in like in a, in, a, in the same type of way that has happened in uh, Ohio. So, Rick, you've covered disasters and mass shootings before for the L.A. Times. You've been with The New York Times since 2014, but you just recently became the national correspondent for the South. What is it like going through your head with this? This is one of your first assignments in your new role. It's it's a reminder of what this job will entail, a lot of unfortunately. This is something, this is for a national publication and for a national correspondent. Covering stories like these are a fact of life in a way and it's um learning how to cover tragedies like this in a way where you don't let it affect you too personally but you also don't become jaded and you don't lose that sense of humanity to really understand the gravity of what happened and so in that way it's been uh instructive and um yeah i mean i've covered as part as a reporter, you cover a lot of bad things. You cover a lot of violence. But the thing that that always kind of motivates me in stories like this is that you see this sort of 
equal opposite reaction. So the the you when you see this much level of this much hate or evil, you also see an equal measure the good that people are capable of, and that's what I've seen in El Paso this week. This week, and that's what's really I've I've really you know it's, I'm heartened by that. So that's kind of what what makes doing these stories uh, palatable or, or okay, because you do get to see the goodness, too. Rick Rojas, he is the New York Times new national correspondent for the South. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Sure. Thanks for having me. Rick is joining us from El Paso, Texas, there where he's reporting in the aftermath of last week's shooting, and we'll be covering President Trump's scheduled visit there today. We always like to hear from you. Let us know what you're thinking on our Facebook account. We are at GPB Radio on Second Thoughts on Facebook. We're on Twitter at OST Talk. We hear a lot of talk about changing things after attacks like this, but it seems like nothing changes. What do you think is the best action? Coming up, a conversation with Atlanta native and author Susan Rebecca White. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Roanoke, September 1962. Two young women meet at a conservative all-girls college. A few states and a few weeks away, President Kennedy orders U.S. Marshals to escort James Meredith past rioters to attend the University of Mississippi. But Daniela Gold, a middle-class girl from Washington, D.C., and Eve Whalen from Atlanta's Upper Crust are consumed by pledging to the right sorority. Well, they are soon both rocked by the shifting tectonic plates of America in the 1960s. Susan Rebecca White's new novel, We Are All Good People, follows the pair as their paths in life and activism diverge, and when 30 years later, their choices reverberate on the lives of their daughters. Susan Rebecca White is going to be at the Decatur Book Festival on Saturday, August 31st. She's at Tall Tales Books on Thursday, the 15th, that's next week, at the Peachtree Street branch of the Atlanta Public Library on the 21st, and her book launch is at the Carter Center this Saturday at 6. You are all over the place. (laughs) So glad to have you with us now. Thank you so much for having me, Virginia. So a little background here. Eve Whalen and Daniela Gold, they roomed together. They hit it off immediately. But a few early interactions exposed their differences. I'm thinking of a conversation they have about manners. Can you set that up for us? Um, Yes. So... Daniela, as she grew up in Georgetown, and her father is a history professor, and her father is Jewish, and her mother is Methodist, and they sort of split the difference by taking Daniela to the Unitarian Church. And so, and Daniela's mother um, campaigned for JFK, so she's she's got a little bit of kind of an activist spirit. It's kind of nascent at this point, and Eve is just from deep, deep deep within the Atlanta, Buckhead, debutante, private school, very sheltered world. And there are black housekeepers who live in the basements of the dorms um, of where they of, of their college in Virginia. And Daniela starts asking questions like, how much do they get paid? What happens if someone gets sick? Um, what happens if someone needs to take care, if a housekeeper needs to take care of a sick family member? And Daniela wants to start sort of interrogating the maids about this, and in particular, Miss Eugenia, who is the woman who um, works in their particular dorm. And Eve keeps saying, that's so rude, that's so rude, you can't ask these questions, it's impolite. And Daniela says, um, 
these codes are set up to keep everyone in their place. Mm-hmm. And Eve sort of looks startled and kind of blinks like she might start to cry. And Daniela has this sort of pen- this tinge of guilt of like feeling bad for making Eve feel bad for even pointing this out. But well, it yeah. and, and it starts to sort of get its seed inside of Eve, certainly. And she 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 has her own nascent activism. In fact, when Daniela is not admitted to the choice sorority called Fleur at the Belmont, that's your fictional school where they are, uh, she she because she's Jewish. I mean, it, that's what we suppose because she's told what. Yeah. So so Eve is a double legacy to Fleur. They have local sororities, not national sororities. And um, and Eve, Daniela probably wouldn't have even gone through Rush, but Eve is like, of course you're a Fleur. You need to do this. And Daniela gets quite swept up in, in Eve's world. It's, it's quite lovely. It, it's quite lovely, um, at least on the surface. And so Daniela goes through Rush and they make it through the first round of parties. And then and then, yes, she just gets cut and it's confusing and no one can figure out what happened. And Daniela immediately says, oh, it's because my dad's Jewish. Yeah. And Eve is like, I refuse to believe that. That is not how things work. And and then Eve finds out through her grandmother, the sort of original floor legacy, that indeed that was true. And her grandmother's going to try to work under the scenes to let Daniela slip in. <laughs> <laughs> but ultimately, she cannot. And uh uh, Eve decides, like, I'm pulling out a fleur then. And it's this is there's such a great scene. Her grandmother, um, and she keeps her grandmother's tea set in her dorm room, by the way. I mean, there are all these old protocols. She comes to put a stop to all that. And it's such a well-written scene. Can you maybe describe, like, how you conjured that up? Yeah, thank you. Um, well, so just just to back up a little bit, the story of this Beautiful young woman being friends with all of the kind of in crowd at her college and then getting sort of abruptly cut from all the sororities that happened to my college roommate's mother um, when she went through Rush at Chapel Hill in the early 1960s. And she was sort of a campus beauty and a campus leader and was friends with all the girls in the top houses. And then at the last round, cut from all of them. And she talked to a dean and the dean basically said, well, you're Jewish and your parents are divorced. Wow. So that was enough. So there you have it. So so that story had really stayed with me. And then I also had in my head this story of a friend of mine from a sort of old Atlanta family, and she decided not to go through Rush. And her mother had said, this is a, a decision that will have serious repercussions and haunt you for the rest of your life or something <laughs> to that extent. And so I had that voice in my head when I was thinking about um, Grandmommy. And Grandmommy, in her world, this is a deeply important um, institution that she belongs to. And she wears her floor pin still. She's buried in her floor pin. So when she finds out that Eve is dropping out, she is so distraught that she has her driver take her up to Roanoke to try to talk sense into Eve. And it's at that moment that she that that grandmommy decides, I'll just I'll just talk to the alumni committee and get them to straighten things out. And Eve, it's like the veil has been lifted and she is horrified. And she had no idea that all of these codes and machinations were in place. She Mm -hmm. she really didn't know. And she is um, a pretty impetuous and fiery woman at heart. And so when she starts to see all of this, it's like she wakes up fast. Yeah, 
Uh, it's such, so funny because grandmama, grandmother is like looking at Danielle and saying, well, you're not flashy at all. I know. <laughs> you know like I know. Her idea of Jewish people. And then she allows herself to have butter on her muffin. Like it's some sort of act of rebellion to have butter. But we do get this, you know, budding social justice warrior in uh, Eve. Certainly she takes up this other cause advocating for Miss Eugenia, the maid that you mentioned who lives in the basement of the residence hall. And that really backfires. Uh, you know, Miss Eugenia basically pays the price for this. And this brings up a question that becomes really central in their lives. Like, how much control does one have as a witness, as a citizen to affect change? And what's the best way? Is it in the system? Is it outside of it? And I wondered about your own investigation yeah. of that. Yeah, thank you. That's a huge question that I still struggle with. Um, I think one of the things that... You know, I don't know if it was, um, oh man, I'm blanking on his name, but there was a, a leader in the civil rights movement, and I believe in the early 60s when um, white and black kids were going to Mississippi to try to register voters. And he basically said, interrogate your motives first. Hmm. Like, first find out, am I trying to um, make my parents mad? Am I running from something? Am I running to this thing to avoid something in my own life? So I think that activism that is kind of rooted in one's own um, inner pathology, in one's own sort of expressing of discontent in, in your life. Like if you're a white person and you're activating, your your activism is around bringing civil rights to black people, but it's really rooted in wanting to make your dad mad. Mm. You're not going to be any help at all. You sort of need to decenter yourself. I think you need to have a lot of humility. You need to um, do as much research as you can, and you need to listen to people whose lives are actually affected um, by the systems that you're trying to change. Yeah, so my guest is Susan Rebecca White. Her new novel is We Are All Good People, and it follows two women from the 1960s to the late 80s as they follow different political paths in a time of extreme change. And this, the, the, what you were just talking about, like what are they carrying into this really comes up. They go to college. They both drop out of Belmont. They go to Barnard. You know, they're in New York City. Um, and it's kind of embodied in the men they choose. You know, Eve meets Warren St. Clair, a compelling radical. Uh, Daniela meets Pete, who's much more conservative, but, you know, foot on the ground kind of guy. But their paths really split here. Uh, when Daniela goes to Mississippi to register people to vote, Eve stays with Warren. Daniela's writing letters about threats and, uh, to civil rights workers and the people who house them. I think yeah. that's the important thing. She's thinking about them. And Eve feels this kind of jealousy. Um, Daniela feels disloyal but exalted. So we can begin to see how people make themselves okay with their choices. But they have the privilege to make choices. What are you getting at here? What's the difference between their experiences? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I love both of these characters, but I think on a like on the most simplistic level, I definitely think that the way that Daniela navigates her activism is the better way, <laughs> not to be too <laughs> polar or didactic. Um, Eve, so there was the Mississippi Summer Project. Um, where black people in Mississippi had been trying to bring attention to the fact that if you tried to register to vote as a black person, you would often be kicked off your land, you could be fired from your job, you could be beaten, you could be lynched. And they weren't getting 
much traction because the nation would not pay attention if it was only if the violence was only happening on black bodies, Mm. um, which I think has um, resonance and relevance for today. And so they said, we need white volunteers to go down too. that's going to make the nation pay attention. And that's what um, Daniela did. And Eve, they, they actually had an application process, which I didn't know, but I found out in researching for this book. So you had to apply to do this program. And Eve applied as well, and she was rejected. And and in, you kind of get a sort of hint that in her application, she talks about how she's going to do this to make up for what she did to Miss Eugenia, which inadvertently got Miss Eugenia fired. And I, my guess is that the people reading the applications were like, okay, this is all about her. It's not actually about this, the, you know, what's going on in the real very high stakes that are, that are at stake right here. So she gets rejected, and she feels in her brain Daniela choosing to go down to Mississippi, even though Eve got rejected, is as if Eve had stayed in floor when Daniela got cut. Mm-hmm. And so it's all very personal and very um close to her own story and Daniela and Daniela probably has the um, fault maybe of, of sometimes coming across as maybe a little holier than thou but she keeps saying we have to depersonalize and like this isn't about us being heroes we get to come down here and we really we're at a little bit of risk but we're not at risk the way that the black citizens of this state are at risk. And when we leave, the black citizens who housed us are going to be in real danger. And I'm and, and Daniela becomes so acutely aware of that when she's in Mississippi, where Eve is not there and is kind of seething and just feeling so left out. Mm-hmm. And she becomes more radical. Absolutely. She joins Smash. This is almost like a kind of weatherman, uh, you know, that she's living in cruddy apartments with people who throw around statements that they pretty much fetishize the Viet Cong. You know, yes. uh, this is during the Viet- anti-Vietnam War era. Call their parents pigs. Uh, I'm I'm curious about how you learned about how they lived, because that comes across very clearly, that kind of, let's say, surface kind of dedication. Yes. So, you know, I was always really interested and admiring of um, the the anti-war activist in the 60s. But in uh, 2003, I watched a documentary called The Weather Underground, which um, took a deep dive into this particular radical splinter of SDS, which was Students for Democratic Society. And the Weather Underground essentially decided that um, that the American government had to come down and that they, a group of very privileged, all-white young people, were going to be the vanguard who did this. And that by doing so, the working class and the black people of America would join them and they would bring down the American government. So it was sort of hubris at its extreme. And it kind of started in what might have been a reasonable ideology of um, America is both the American government is both clamping down on the rights of black citizens and arrogantly entering this civil war in Vietnam and causing all kinds of havoc there. And what do we do? Like they had good questions that they were asking, but they came up with this fixed answer that centered them, put them in the middle of it, and led them to do things such as um, set a bomb at the Pentagon, set a bomb at the state capitol. And and when I watched the, the movie, it, it just seemed to me like 
like in a way they were just involved in child's play, although child's play with bombs and with matches. Mm. Well, Eve sort of gloms onto any kind of political action is prevailing at the time for a while. The civil rights, the anti-war movement. She becomes a Reagan Republican in yes, the end. Many, many things happen here. <laughs> uh, an, evangelic, an, an evangelical Christian uh, in the end, all going in whole hog. It, it's like... What is she? Tr- is she trying to erase her guilt or herself? That is a great question. Um, I don't know. Um, I I have a friend a, who was a lovely woman who killed herself just before her fortieth birthday, mm. and this friend had poured herself into so many different movements. Um, more in the kind of conservative evangelical Christian world. But, you know, she would go to Africa to hold orphans. She would foster children. She homeschooled. She did so much, and it all seemed so good. And then when she took her life, all of us were left asking, what had she been looking for? What was that gap there that it seemed like she was trying to pour herself into all of these things outside of herself when something was so broken? And I think that I was probably exploring some of those questions when I was writing about Eve, because I I can tell you some about her psychology, but in the end, I'm not sure why she felt like she had to be so fully committed and immersed in these different kind of distinct and extreme ideologies. Uh, I can't believe we're almost out of time here because I could talk to you for a lot longer about this. But, you know, you're not a boomer. Why did you why, why were you attracted <laughs> to this boomer story? I So I'm a kid. You know, I, I was born in 75. So I grew up in the mid 80s. And, you know, I watched Family Ties every Thursday night and I loved it. Um, so I think that I kind of idolized the 60s, and then it was really interesting to take a deeper dive and recognize that it's a much more complicated story than I had thought through Elise and Michael Keaton. Well, it, <laughs> and it comes alive in this book. The book is We Are All Good People Here. Susan Rebecca White, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having She's me. She's going to be running this town. She's at the Decatur Book Festival on Saturday. She's at Tall Tales Books on Thursday, the Peachtree Street at the Atlanta Public Library on August 24th. And her book launches at the Carter Center this Saturday at 6. Details will leave you with Crying in the Streets, a great civil rights theme from George Perkins as we say goodbye just for now. I, this is Virginia Prescott with On Second Thought. <laughs>